0: Stop me if you've heard this one. A man is out in the woods. Usually the woods. Sometimes in the snowy mountains or along the seashore. It really depends on the local fauna featured. But the character is always a man. A single man, specifically. And I mean single as in unmarried. Not single as alone, though he is alone in this part of the story. And he comes across an animal. The type of animal is a matter of local custom. Sometimes it's a crane or a spider or a fox or a seal or a clam. Really, if you're not sure, ask yourself one question. Would this animal make a good wife? The animal is injured, or in some kind of distress, and our man, kind person that he is, helps the animal out. He pulls an arrow out from it, or frees it from a trap, or saves it from another animal. The grateful animal leaves, and the man goes home, only to find a beautiful, demure woman waiting on his doorstep. And she wants very much to be his bride. She's not, like, super desperate about it, because that would totally be a turn-off for our guy. But she's happy to cook and clean for him. You know, all the things that wives are supposed to do for husbands. And the man is totally down for this. He generously allows this mysterious, beautiful woman to clean his house and cook him his meals. Ain't he just the best? And soon they settle into a happy routine where he leaves every day to do his job as a woodcutter slash merchant slash fisherman. And she stays home to home make for him. Maybe they get married along the way. Maybe they even have kids. It just so happens, though, that some days she'll have done more than just cook and clean for him. Some days he'll either wake up to or come home to some beautiful thing that his dutiful wife has crafted for him. Maybe it's a bolt of impossibly light cloth. Or a kimono of unearthly beauty? Or a pile of rare animal pelts? Or maybe just some invigorating soup? Yeah, soup. Hey, go easy, not everyone can weave heavenly garments. And the man is justifiably curious about this, especially in the cases of the fancy weavings. Especially since his wife is making all of these things with mundane materials. Though, in some cases, she does seem to get weaker and weaker as the story goes on. She warns him, though, that this is her secret. And that it is vital to their marriage that he not cry. After a while, though, his curiosity gets the best of him. And the man decides to spy on his wife. By either pretending to leave for the day, or hiding in a closet before she begins her work. Because you know only good things can come from spying on your spouse. And that's when he discovers his wife's secret. You see, her husband leaves for the day, or goes to sleep for the night. And that's when he discovers his wife's secret. You see, when her husband leaves for the day, or goes to sleep for the night, that's when she assumes her true form. Her true form being that of the animal that the man had rescued all that time ago. Right, you saw that coming. She's the animal that he saved? Okay, just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. You see, the animal had been so grateful for the man's help that it took on the form of a beautiful woman in order to marry the man. And maybe bear him some children? And generally be his maid and cook and lover? I'm not criticizing the decision, mind you. If someone saves my life, they are absolutely getting a thank you card from me. Though a lifetime of domestic tradwife servitude might be a bit much. And in some versions of the story, she's using her body to craft the unearthly gifts for her husband, plucking her own feathers to weave into brocade, consuming mountains of cotton to spin thread, using her tail to sweep up the front porch, peeing in the broth to add flavor to the soup. Hey, don't judge. The life of a clam wife is hard but whatever it is, it is wearing her down. She is literally sacrificing her body to please her man. Which is some devoted trad wife shit. Our man, though, cannot be chill about this and he takes the news poorly. He either yelps in surprise from his hiding place, confronts his wife about her true nature, or in versions where he's just kind of a shithead, throws her out for not being human. However it goes, it ends with the wife leaving him usually sadly, because in most versions of the story, she loved him. But that's how these stories go. The animal wife leaves, and the man is left alone. All right, hi, I'm Kara Clements, and this is Trans Arcana, where we take a queer look at the supernatural. Today we're going to talk about Crane Wives, what they are, who these stories are for, and different ways of interpreting them. So, most of the stories we've talked about so far have been probably pretty familiar to you, and there's a chance you might not be as familiar with this one. Or maybe you are, and I'm just presuming. Animal life tales are pretty common in the folklore of Japan, so if that's a culture you have ties to or familiarity with, then there's a good chance you've encountered this story before. Probably with a crane serving as a central animal wife. And other versions exist too, sometimes with slightly different formats. But in addition to the crane wife, you might have also heard the story of the spider wife, the snake wife, the frog wife, or the fox wife, or even the clam wife. Or clam wife. Outside of Japan, though, similar stories exist of animals or non-humans taking on human form and becoming, willingly or unwillingly, the wives of human men. If you're not familiar with crane wives, you might have heard of swan wives, wood wives, melusines, or sulkies that feature in similar Western stories. But they all follow some similar patterns. First, a human man, by some means or another, obtains a non-human entity as his wife. Second, that wife takes on a human form and lives with a man for a duration of time. Third, the man violates a taboo, discovers her true nature, or generally fucks up somehow. And finally, she resumes her original form and leaves him. And while the story sounds really simple when you reduce it down like that, there's a lot going on under the hood that's worth talking about. A marriage to a non-human spouse, for example. Or the wife as some kind of ideal waifu. That is, internet anime slang for domestic servitude wife. The violation of taboo, and also the agency of the wife herself. All of which you can read in radically different ways. And I actually think this story changes a lot depending on not just the telling, but on who you are as a listener. Because maybe you have sympathy for the crane wife. Or maybe you empathize with her. Or maybe you empathize with the husband and want a crane wife of your own? Did I call it? Is that your secret fantasy? Do you secretly want your own crane wife? Oh, yeah, we're going to linger here for a second. I'm calling you out, anime nerds. I know that this is the secret fantasy of at least 50% of you. And I know this because this is metaphorically the plot of every single harem anime. You want your own personal crane waifu to be lovingly devoted to you, and cook and clean and provide for you. And in return, you want to do one big gesture. Once. Maybe accidentally. Without a lot of effort on your part. And in return, you get a wife forever. Did I get that right? Tenshi? Sukune, Rito? Keitaro? Neki, Ataru, etc. Pick the harem protag of your choice. It doesn't matter, they're all the same. Two-dimensional characters that the reader is supposed to imagine themselves as. Prove to me that I'm wrong. Prove to me that I'm wrong and I'll do a whole incongruous Trans Arcana episode about harem manga. Sorry, was that too mean? If you feel personally attacked, Rest easy knowing that this was at least a partial attack on myself from like a decade or two ago, when I was absolutely that same anime nerd I was just calling out. But that actually brings up my favorite point when discussing these stories. Because we don't dig into these stories because they have some sort of secret coded message about life, but because if a story is popular, if it's stuck around for years, decades, centuries. That means something in the story resonates with people. And that's worth investigating. So let's ask, what is it about a crane wife that people identify with? This is the version I grew up with. The version my grandmother told me when I was very small sitting on the floor at her feet. In old Japan, there was once a woodcutter. Most Japanese fables feature woodcutters. There's probably a reason for that. He lived a lonely life, and a poor one at that. But he was a kind man. So much so that one day, while walking through the snow, he saw a white shape plummet from the sky and rush towards it without a moment's thought. When he got there, he found a white crane. Lying injured in the snow, an arrow piercing through its wing. Hunters, it seemed, had shot the crane. The man removes the arrow and does his best to treat the bird's wound, going so far as to tear sections of his own clothes to staunch the bleeding. It works, though, and the crane is able to fly off and the man goes home. The next day a beautiful woman arrives at his doorstep and asks if he'll take her as his wife. The man agrees and the mysterious woman moves in. Soon after, in addition to doing the cooking and cleaning, the woman begins producing amazing fabrics embroidered with beautiful patterns of birds in flight. They're incredibly soft to the touch and so finely woven that they're fit for nobility Naturally, the man asks how she made them, but the woman demurs. In fact, she says she'll continue to weave them for the man to sell, but only if he agrees to never look in on her as she weaves them. Once again, the man agrees, and soon the two live in wealth, with the wife producing a new stretch of fabric every morning and the man going out to sell it each day. The only problem was that the wife began to look a little sickly, and every day she seemed a bit weaker. The husband is living the good life. The fabric that his wife weaves is bringing in the big bucks, so he asks her to make more. The wife, already looking very worn out, tries, but in trying to make more fabrics, only exhausts herself, and the extra cloth she produces has flecks of blood on it. Her husband, seeking to solve the mystery of the blood, and maybe get his wife to weave more, decides to spy on her while she works one night. He watches in amazement as she transforms into a crane and works the loom, weaving beautiful fabrics. Every few passes of the loom, though, the crane plucks a feather from herself, weaving it in, making the fabric even more beautiful. The husband could see from the bloody patches on the crane that this is what she'd been doing from the start to craft such finery. Startled at this revelation, the husband lets out a cry, alerting the crane to his presence. As he approaches her, she sadly informs him that he's broken the rules she set out for him. He's seen her in her crane form, and now she can no longer be with him. The crane wife flies away, leaving the man alone once more. that's the version, as best as I can remember it, from my grandmother. It's a sad story, or at least that telling of it is, in that there's a tragedy to it. Because the ending isn't really happy, the man is alone, the crane is alone, but maybe the bigger tragedy is that there's not even room there for a happy ending. Because even if the crane had stuck around and kept weaving the stress of it probably would have hurt her more. One of the interesting elements of fairy tales is that they're traditionally a way to explain to people how the world works or why it works this way. One of the more popular ways to read The Crane Wife is to focus on her situation because it's not generally read as a particularly happy one. Most frequently, people see this as a sort of allegory for an unhappy marriage Or even a conservative marriage in a traditional household, wherein a woman, through obligation, becomes the wife of a man and is expected to serve him domestically, all the while sacrificing parts of herself to make him happy. The metaphor is actually pretty sharp there. In the same way the crane plucks out her own feathers, injuring herself to make her husband happy, so too might a dutiful wife give up dreams hopes, and personal wants for the sake of her husband. It's bleak, but it tracks. So well that it's practically a radfem allegory for marriage under a patriarchal society. A wife is expected to be demure or domestic and sacrifice her freedom, her body, and her well-being for the desires of her husband. And that would all check out, except for one thing. The crane wife is in control of the situation. Okay, so there's this author, Fumihiko Kobayashi. She's done a lot of research on these animal wife stories. In fact, she has a whole book on them. Japanese animal wife tales, narrating gender reality in Japanese folklore tradition. It's one of the primary sources for this episode. She argues that the poor mistreated crane wife interpretation is the result of centuries of telling the story in an overly sentimental way. You see, this story exists not just as an oral tradition, but in theater and other forms of performance. And people love a good tragic story. So Kobayashi thinks that this is part of why everyone reads this story with the mindset of excessive sympathy for the crane wife. Because every telling of it so far emphasizes that part. And you see, Kobayashi's big point is that the animal wives have agency in these stories. Agency being the freedom and ability to act and make decisions on their own. So while the crane wives are rescued initially as animals, they are the ones who choose to go to the men as human women. They are also the ones who set the prohibitions on when their husbands can see them. And the animal wives are the ones who choose to leave when those prohibitions are violated. In fact, it's not just agency, it's control. The animal wives are more or less in control of the story. Kobayashi points out that in some iterations of the story, the agency is actually a little clearer. Like with the frog wife. Similar structure with this story, but a few differences see if you can spot them so in the frog wife a man saves a frog from a trap or a hazard and a beautiful wife shows up on his doorstep you know the drill by this point this one though doesn't make any special cloth for him basically his reward for saving the frog is hey you got a hot wife that should be enough for you another difference in this version is that when the husband is at home, the frog wife is at home with him. But when he leaves for the day, so does she. So while he's out working, she just goes back to her frog pond to chill out and be a frog. Eventually, the husband gets curious as to where she's going and follows her. He sees her turn into a frog, and he gets so mad that he throws a rock into the frog pond. She later comes home with an injured leg and a limp from the thrown rock. She tells her husband that this is over and leaves him. I actually kind of like this one more because the frog wife is less into the self-sacrifice and has zero tolerance for spying slash violent husband bullshit. Also, I would like to point out that if we read this one as an allegory, the husband is literally just upset that she has her own life and he starts getting violent and throwing shit, hurting her in the process because of that. And she decides, fuck this, and leaves. Frog Wife is an inspiration for dumping his abusive ass. But this is kind of what Kobayashi's talking about. There's a tendency to read these stories as allegories for subjugated wives, but the animal wives can kind of leave at any time. They're making a decision to stick with their husbands because of earlier kindnesses. But as soon as privacy or safety are violated, they are more than willing to dump their asses. In the Japanese versions of these stories, anyway. Because there's another way the animal wife story can go, particularly in the versions from the North Sea. The way I've heard it is that there was once a young man who would spend much of his time near the shore, and one day he saw a beautiful woman on the beach sunning herself, and while she was naked there was some sort of garment next to her, lying quite near some brush. So as she sunned herself or splashed in the water, the young man snuck up the beach, through the brush, and stole the strange garment. What his goals were, I'm not sure. Maybe he knew her true nature on sight, or maybe his goal was to make sure she stayed naked, which might be a felony. But he grabbed the garment, which turned out to be a mass of gray blubbery skin, like a raincoat, but with whiskers. It was, as it turned out, seal skin, because the woman was a selkie a sort of mythical sea entity that could change between human and seal shape by removing or putting back on her seal skin. When she discovered that her skin had been taken, she panicked because she knew she couldn't return to the sea as a seal without it. Our young man then popped up and claimed her as his bride or promises that he'll return the skin to her eventually if she becomes his bride. Or something about the magic involved means that she has to become his bride because he took her skin? I don't know. There's not really a good read on that there. No matter how you look at it, she's basically forced into marrying him. I think the nicest version of the story that I could find has them falling in love prior and her asking him to hide the seal skin away. So there's that, I guess? In the worst version, though, he threatens to burn the skin, which would kill her, so she agrees to become his bride. So there's also that. But they get married, they have children, and for a while everything's fine-ish? At least as fine as things can be when you've been coerced into a marriage. But the Silky Bride story really only has one ending. Because one way or another, she finds her skin wherever her husband has hidden it. In many versions, it's kept locked in a chest and her husband either forgets his key at home or their human daughter stumbles across it. And the selkie takes her seal skin and flees from her life on the land and returns to the sea, leaving behind her husband and human children. I should note that this isn't the only selkie story out there. Among the countries and cultures that border the North Sea, Selkies are well represented in stories. They're often seen as wielders of powerful magic, dire harbingers, or the cause of genetic variances in children. Kind of similar to the Fae in Celtic lore, just in the ocean. And also their seals. And like the Crane Wife story, the Selkie Wife story has a lot of variants. What I just told was a kind of very broad, general version. A lot of countries have much more specific iterations. In the Faroe Islands, for example, the story has a third act, in which the human husband, enraged at the departure of his Selkie wife, hunts down her Selkie husband and Selkie children and kills them. So the Selkie Wife curses the island with as many deaths as it would take to form a ring around the nearby city. What can I say? Stories from the Faroe Islands can get pretty metal. But, death curses aside, you can kinda see some similarities in the Selkie story and the Crane Wife story. We've got an animal entity that becomes the wife of a human man. As the man's wife, she behaves in a way that suits that man. But some physical trace of her animal body remains. And the revealing of that animal element results in the termination of the marriage and her return to her life before. But there are also some differences. Bearing the version of the Selkie story where they're in love at the start, in most versions, she's coerced into becoming his bride. Whereas, as Kobayashi points out, crane wives generally make that decision on their own. Likewise, the Selkie wife only stays because of the seal skin that the husband keeps in his possession. She has to be kept there, or she'll leave. Again, in contrast to the Crane Wife, who seems to be more or less voluntarily staying. And finally, the Departure has a different feel to it. With the Crane Wife, it can range between a sad ending due to a breach of trust, to a bit of salvation for the mistreated wife. But with the Selkie Wife, there's a feeling of release. An eventuality delivered on. Like... And this was going to happen, and we've been waiting for it to happen. Sort of a Chekhov seal skin. And because of that, the Selkie Wife story as a metaphor hits a bit differently. As a metaphor for a relationship, we've got something maybe even less healthy than a Crane Wife marriage. Because while the Crane Wife entered into a potentially unhealthy relationship because of some past connections and an acknowledgement of kindness, Our selkie wife marriage is all about coercion. Even in the nicer versions of the story, she has to be coerced into marriage in the first place by taking away her access to a means of getaway. She asks the husband to hide away her sealskin because otherwise she'll take it back and return to the sea. The only thing keeping her in this marriage is that coercion. Once she has a way to get out, her sealskin, she is... fucking... out. It's also interesting that in most of these Selkie stories, even her human children aren't an impediment to her getting the fuck out. And that paints a really bleak picture as far as metaphors go. That of a woman enslaved as wife and mother, desperate to escape both roles. BT dubs, just so we're clear, Eliciting sex through coercion is rape. That's what the human husband is doing in this story. I'm just going to avoid using the word to help out folks who might have trauma issues with the term, but I just want it to be clear. And also, just so we don't leave it behind too, forced pregnancy is also horrific and can constitute slavery, a war crime, and or a human rights violation at the very least. I know we're talking about a fictional narrative here, but I just wanted to make that clear. Now, back to the topic. Outside of the metaphor, the abandonment of the children might be read a couple of ways. Narratively, it's maybe an attempt to balance out the coercive methods of keeping the Selkie as a mother against her will. Sort of a, well, sure, she was enslaved as an unwilling mother, but would you look at what a bad mother she is? It's. Not a good argument, but when presented subtextually, it might slip by a reader. If your first thought when hearing this story was, she left behind her kids, and not, he kidnapped her and forced her to birth children for him, well then that means the subtext worked on you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, I'm just pointing out how subtle it is. It totally worked on me until I started picking at the story. But when we go back and catch it, it becomes really clear that the husband, in most tellings of this story, is a piece of shit. He captures a woman, or supernatural lady, forces her into a marriage through coercion, and then has children with her, presumably through the same method. Piece of shit behavior right there. Not sure how this balances out with child abandonment. I don't know about you, but when reading this story, I'm having trouble shaking the metaphor of a person trapped in a marriage, desperate to get out, but unable to leave because of a coercive threat that their spouse holds over them. And or kept from leaving because of the kids. Let's just say with the news these days, it feels very relevant. Sorry, I know we're getting a little bleak. What if we read the Selkie through horror tropes instead? Maybe that would be a nice break. So, the Selkie abandoning her human children might be an example of a pretty popular horror trope. The dysfunctional mother, sometimes referred to as the dark mother or the monster mother. If you're a horror movie fan, you've seen her before. She is Nicole Kidman in The Others. She is Coraline's other mother and her real mother. She's La Llorona. She's Mama. She's a witch. She's a mother. She's unsure. She's a monster. The trope is wide ranging and covers both antagonists and protagonists. Basically, the dysfunctional mother is a mother in a supernatural context who doesn't do what mothers are traditionally supposed to do. Note that what mothers are traditionally supposed to do is usually framed by some conservative cultural norms. She might steal children, or neglect them, or abandon them. These are all bad things. But alternatively, she might be earnestly trying to be a good mother, but fails some test in the eyes of the audience or society. Maybe she even commits the cardinal sin of putting some part of her life before her children. How horrifying! And in this sense, the sulky mother is that dysfunctional mother. She refuses to stay in an abusive slash coercive relationship, even for the sake of the children. And staying for the sake of the children is what we expect women to do in stories. And in life. Even if the situation is horribly damaging or dangerous for the mother, even if she's been trapped in that situation through disgusting means, However, the Selkie decides not to put up with that, and for that crime, we judge her. And if you're uncomfortable now, good. As much as we tend to culturally revere motherhood, that reverence comes with a lot of expectations that can be incredibly restricting and judgmental and stressful, so much so that people who find themselves in the role of mother can struggle with societal expectations on top of the necessities of acting as a parent. The dysfunctional mother trope is revealing, not because it reveals a lot about the character in a story, but because it reveals a lot about a society and individuals who respond to the story and judge the mothers within as dysfunctional. Because the trope tells us a lot about what sort of behavior we expect from mothers and the sort of behavior we deem unacceptable. Even monstrous. I want to suggest one final reading of The Crane Wife before we go. Or The Frog Wife, or Clam Wife, or Fox Wife. Really, whatever animal suits your fancy. Furries, I'm not judging you. We talked about it in the context of domesticity, of motherhood, of agency, of monstrosity, but there's another element here that I think is really important to a queer reading of the story, especially a trans reading of it, and that's the discovery slash reveal. So to recap, in the crane wife stories, the husband is unaware that the wife is actually a crane, and upon that revelation, their relationship comes to an end. You see where I'm going with this? Again, fairy tales are useful because they help us to explain how the world is, or why things are the way they are. When we tell them, we tend to emphasize those parts of the story that are meaningful to us in those ways. You see, there's a way to read this story from a trans perspective that turns it into a really interesting allegory. In this reading, we take the idea of the crane wife and read her as a trans wife. Initially encountered by the man in a non mariable form, a crane or in a pre-transition state of self or identity, the trans wife later returns to the man in a new form, a perfectly mariable woman. The husband delightedly marries the trans wife with limited knowledge of her previous self, and a happy marriage is established. But the trans wife establishes a taboo. In order to ensure the stability of their marriage, He must not view her as she once was. If he does, she cannot be with him." Now, granted, there's a way to read this in the sense of a trans person who's gone stealth and married someone without knowledge of their transition. Stealth is a slang term in the trans community for basically burning down your past so that you can live exclusively as your new self. And in this reading, there's definitely a sense of the husband discovering his wife's secret which would feed into the unfortunate trans people tricking potential partners narrative, which would make this a really unfortunate read. for it would, except except for Fumihiko Kobayashi's point about crane stories. The crane has agency. The crane is in control. You see, while the crane wife establishes the taboo that her husband not observe her in her animal form, and her husband violates that taboo, by seeing her in the animal form, she ultimately leaves because he's seen her in that form, not because she has the form, because he's seen her in it. And I think that's an important distinction. I wanna offer this more nuanced trans reading of the story, that it's less about hiding secrets from a spouse and wanting to have agency over how you're perceived for many trans people, external perception of oneself is an important part of being yourself. That is, how others see you makes a huge difference in how you exist. And sometimes those others might be people in general, and sometimes it's our loved ones. For me, it's very important that I be seen as a lady. In the trans wife version of this story, I see a trans spouse who begins a relationship with someone but wants them only to see her as who she is now. So she asks her spouse not to look up older pictures of her, to not see her as a crane. When her spouse does, our trans wife cannot bear that he has seen her as a crane and leaves. Now I don't mean to suggest that this story is aspirational, I don't think that every relationship should end for these reasons. But I do think that this telling might be relatable, maybe for other trans people, it very much is for me at least, or maybe for people in general, because it's about the vulnerability we feel about being seen privately, or being seen in ways that we don't want to be seen, especially when you've worked so hard to be seen a particular way. There is, yes, a fear of rejection from a loved one, that they'll see you as a crane and never see you the same way again. And sometimes when presented with that moment of uncertainty and fear, we might want to run before we can be rejected, to escape before harsh words or judgment can be levied, to fly away and never be seen again. Today's episode drew from a number of sources. Fumihiko Kobayashi's book, Japanese Animal Wife Tales, narrating gender reality in Japanese folklore tradition, Florence Sakade and Yoshisuke Kurosaki's Japanese children's favorite stories, and my grandmother, July Hamada. This episode was written and produced by me, Kari Clements. Our cover art was created with the Wombo Dreams app. If you enjoyed this episode of Trans Arcana and want more of our mixture of queer theory and occult lore, you can follow us on Twitter at TransArcana. That's T-R-A-N-S-A-R-C-A-N-A at Twitter.com. And always make sure to get back your seal skin.